0: Welcome back to the History of South Africa podcast with me, your host, Tess Latham. This is episode 8 and the focus is on the 1500s. We heard last episode how Portuguese seafarer Vasco da Gama had spent time in South and East Africa as he looked to build stepping stones on the route to the Far East. Just a note, to fix an error I made in episode 6, and thanks to listener Aravind for picking this up. De Gama had sailed to Calicut on the southwest coast of India, not Calcutta, which of course is on the east coast, so apologies about that. By the early 1500s, Portugal controlled the major ports along northern Mozambique and into modern-day Kenya, all the way up to Mombasa. However, they did not seek to take over the land, so to speak, at least at first. The idea was to build fortified ports so they could enhance trade with those inland without resorting to boots on the ground. At the same time, Great Zimbabwe had passed into history, and the western parts of Zimbabwe were now controlling the trade routes between southern Africa and the Indian Ocean ports. Meanwhile, to the south, Sutu and Tswana speakers had pushed into the mixed bushveld habitats that lie against the grasslands of the half At this time, dry stone walling starts to be used to mark essential settlement boundaries, reaching the southern shores of the Vaal River and the Free State by the early 1600s. Oral history has helped us a great deal, as the Sutu and Tswana storytelling means we know that the people who moved here came from Botswana of today and founded a core Tswana identity in the areas of present-day Rustenburg and Mariko by the late 1400s. There is an elaborate Tswana creation myth involving a leader called Matsing, who is said to have emerged from holes in the earth. This is now believed to be related to the origin of the Tswana northeast of the capital of Botswana, Khabarone, where there are rock cavities and sumps in the riverbeds in that area. Once again, geology and landscape play a part in our history. Associated with these holes are petroglyphs of human and feline footprints that are thought to be ancient hunter-gatherers' work. By 1500, the ancestral Tswana settlements were well established below the 5,000 feet contour line of South Africa and to the north of the southern grasslands of the Free State. These folks built their homesteads along the lower reaches of hills closer to the rivers, whereas the older people, the first farmers, tended to build their homes a little higher. They were still utilising the central cattle pattern layout. The preservation of these earliest Tswana sites is poor, and yet we have found evidence of sorghum and millet agriculture. It was a mixed farming system here in the rail resourced habitat. Some of the more interesting finds are around in Mariko in Northwest Province, where early Sutu and Suana are also backed up by the Hurutsi oral tradition in terms of the history. The Baralong were associated with this region too and predate the time when increased population meant a fishing process that led to the formation of the Baralong. Most of these early 1500 Sutu and Suana homesteads appear to be self sufficient. They are also missing a core ingredient which is always found in South Africa when people are linked to the Eastern Ocean Trade Network. Glass beads. There are none. So these people were hardly likely to be part of the southern Zimbabwe network of traders They had moved too far southwest and were part of the peoples who would end up in modern South Africa. It is time now to probe the relationship between these second-phase farmers, the Sutu and Nguni, as well as the San hunter-gatherers. We have a fantastic record of this relationship across South Africa, an amazing heritage carved and painted on rock. Their fantastic art is even more important because it tells the story of the ancient people from their point of view. The frontiers and relationships between the sand and the non sand can be summarized in two general areas the first, north of the Vaal River, and the second concentrates south of the Vaal. It is the higher ground of the Drakensberg escarpment to the southeast and the Kaledin Valley to the west of Lesotho which bear the marks of these first people of South Africa most distinctly. Let's start north of the Vaal. Here, rock shelter sequences provide comparisons between hunter-gatherers before the end of the first millennium and the second. It's interesting how much of the first farmer pottery is scattered around the rock shelters and caves of these northern sand, starting as early as the first farmers arrived, 200 AD or so. There's a continuity in material culture, including stone tools and bone, that has been worked, as well as ostrich eggshell beads. But by the 2nd millennium AD, this changes. The continuity appears absent. What caused this shift? For almost a thousand years, the first farmers and the first people seem to have exchanged goods on some basis. We've heard how the first farmers and San appear to have lived apart on the landscape, but had interlinking relationships at times. That's the source of the pottery in the San shelters. By 1000 AD, that changes. In southeastern Botswana, the hunter-gatherers, for example, lived much closer or with the Tswana farmers, dependents at times. This dependency continued through until the first written records by Europeans 700 years later. When we dig up a sand shelter, we get sand material. However, when we dig up Tswana homesteads from 1500 AD, we find sand residues inside the shelter space. That means we have a way of examining what was a face-to-face relationship. Early Tswana homesteads of the late 1500s and early 1600s contain sand tools in back courtyards of individual households. In the Tswana tradition, the back courtyard is the place for women where they can store and grind cereals, prepare food and store kitchen utensils. Outside of this space is the felt, the wild domain. Like women, the sand were viewed by the farmers as not complete people, and neither women nor sand were fully socialized. They were not allowed to possess or control cattle, for example. The location of these sand-linked spaces has another important motif. The proximity to the bush underpinned the power of the sand to live in that world outside, the wild. However, within a short time after this period, the sand mobility pattern begins breaking down. They are either co-opted or move into spaces where there was very little interaction with the Tswana. Take the Macalisburg, for example, east of Mariko. There's a trend in the archaeological record where sand societies begin to break down compared to the continuity of their caves and shelters in the first 1,000 years AD. The annual cycle stretching back tens of thousands of years was progressively fractured and ultimately dissolved completely. Furthermore, near Great Zimbabwe, we know that sand or hunter-gatherer shelters were actually co-opted by the farmers in a kind of ritual power grab. It is thought the motivation was to command power of nature by controlling the homes, if you like, of the First Nations peoples. The dispersal of the Sutu Tswana and Nguni people began to have a demographic effect on the sand. And yet, there were mutual dependencies because as the Tswana moved southwest, the sand moved with them in some instances. The area around the Weiterberg has many sites that prove this. As they moved further south around the Sotpansberg, the relationship between Tswana and San shifted towards conflict and subjugation. A group of mixed race of peoples emerged long before whites and blacks met, except these people were Bantu and San. The early Sutu and Tswana legends are full of these stories and the people who became known as the Foul Pensa. The Foul Pensa were derided by the farmers and lived and served at the bottom of the social rung of both the Tswana and later Indabeli communities. As we'll hear in future podcasts, these people were traded and bartered into Boer society. Simultaneously, the San art of the period degenerates into what archaeologists call the art of the apocalypse. West of the Drakensberg mountain range, the paintings indicate the San at times were incorporating elements of Sotho and Tswana practices into their daily lives, such as herding cattle. As hunter-gatherers, that seems counterintuitive, but there's no denying that the paintings depict both Sotho and San herding. They would migrate towards the Sutu and Swana, then at times of the year, migrate away, being far more mobile than the farmers. It's important to note this was only happening in the western and northwestern reaches of South Africa. Beyond the Reach River, there was a more marked difference, with the sand resorting to building stone wall settlements in the mode of the Sutu and Swana, and a distinct shift to livestock keeping by the sand. One thing is puzzling. If the sand and the Sutu were living close by, and sometimes together, Why don't the Sutu and Swana languages have cliques? On the eastern side of the Drakensberg, things were very different. The Nguni speakers had arrived here by the 1100s, and cliques eventually made up a large proportion of Nguni language. This indicates an altogether different form of interaction between the two peoples, the San and the Nguni. And one that must have been longer and more continuous than to the west, as well as being more intense, the Nguni had only arrived on this landscape between the twelfth and thirteenth centuries, and yet their language changes to incorporate Sand and koi clicks. Furthermore, the nature of interaction between the Nguni and Khoisan speakers on the southern margins of the viable mixed farming areas was different to those two groups living further north along the coast and hinterland. On both linguistic and genetic grounds, southern Nguni and Khoisan interaction was closer and more continuous. It is now thought. The reason for this was climate. In the south, the farming is more unpredictable. Think about the regions through the southern trans today and into the small Karoo. Thus, the different people built up a more stable relationship over a longer period. They relied more on each other. And we also know that the difference in structure of relationships between the Nguni speakers on the one hand and sotho Tswana on the other is to be found in certain social institutions. For example, the institutionalized marginality of Nguni wives and specifically women as diviners places them at the interface with the less-than-human world of sand hunter-gatherers. That's the world of magic. Inguni women became the conduit through which linguistic and spiritual exchanges took place with influence running from sand into Nguni society, not the other way around. Women who alter their language teach their children while the men have less of an impact on day-to-day language education. An important domain of interaction between the sand and Nguni farmers was in rainmaking and historical records accord some status to sand rainmakers. The incredible rock art sequence of the southeastern Drakensberg makes a powerful statement about the development of these relationships. For example, in the earlier phases of the rock art sequence, human figures are undifferentiated. But later phases show that some of the figures are fantastically individualized. The heads of the sand medicine men and women became far larger than their bodies, for example. The sequence is deeply embedded, in the changing role of sand diviners away from the conventional healing where the traditional healer works throughout the community to a more powerful position as a kind of ritual rainmaker. This is true particularly of Southern Nguni society, of the Issa and in the early oral tradition records. By the time first shipwrecked sailors begin writing of this relationship, it had been going on for hundreds of years and the sand rock art records this. Meanwhile, the last years of the 15th and through to the 16th century South Africa's contacts with the outside world took on new forms. By the 1500s, we've already heard what the Portuguese were doing on the East Coast and how that helped reshape the trade that had made Great Zimbabwe flourish. The Arabs were pushed north and the Western Zimbabwean region then dominated the new networks dealing now also with the Europeans. No longer was maritime trade maintained only with the shores of the Indian Ocean. From 1550 through to 1600, The impact of European trade on southern Africa was to spike substantially. The west coast of Africa and the Gold Coast trade was being tapped for slaves, along with ivory and other valuable goods. This was the century in which another European nation came to dominate the world shipping industry, the Dutch. I explained how the Portuguese at first attempted to conduct slave raiding parties from the shores of Table Bay and Cape Town and how these ended in disaster in 1510, for Francisco de Almeida and 50 of his men who died. The Portuguese would-be slave trade of the Koi pretty much came to an end at that moment, and the European maritime nation concentrated further north in Portuguese Guinea and further northeast, present-day Mozambique, up the coast to Zanzibar and Mombasa. They had learned to give the Koi in South Africa a pretty wide berth when it came to setting up ports. For the next 150 years, ships would stop off along South Africa's coast, but nothing was done to colonise the region. Handfuls of sailors from various nations did find themselves shipwrecked on that coast, and this made for fascinating stories, which I'll deal with along the way. It was a discovery in 1610 that was to completely change that picture. That's when the Dutch realised a quicker route to the Far East treasure trove of spices was to sail due east from the Cape, then to swing north, Reached their trading network in Java by passing the Mozambique Channel and clipping Mauritius through to sail directly up the Indian Ocean and into the islands of magnificence. That meant they didn't have to port hop up the coast of East Africa and then strike northeast after bypassing Mozambique. It was a revolutionary discovery and one that would have implications for the Khoi and other South African people. In 1580, Sir Francis Drake, the famous English navigator, passed the Cape for the first time, and during his circumnavigation of the world, he described this part of South Africa as a most stately thing and the most fairest Cape we saw in the whole circumference of the earth, which was high praise indeed. In 1591, the English landed in Table Bay for the first time. They were more successful and more diplomatic than their Portuguese predecessors in their interaction with the Koi. So in 1591, George Raymond and James Lancaster sailed three ships named Penelope, Merchant Royal and Edward Bonaventure to Saldana Bay, north of Cape Town. Despite their relatively passive approach, they still managed to seize a man and demanded he show them the interior. After a week of marching and seeing nothing, they let him go with a few trinkets. Whoever our South African was, he was quick to make the most of what he had observed for a week marching through the Western Cape with these Englishmen, A week later, he returned with around 50 other men who brought 40 bullocks, described by Raymond and Lancaster as very large and well-fleshed, but no fat, which were duly paid for. There is some mythology about trade and bartering at this time. The old narrative spun by those who don't have the facts was that the Europeans brought trinkets and the koi accepted these. That's wrong. The koi refused to take cheap beads and baubles and even mirrors, they were after something much more important. Iron and brass or copper goods, pots, knives and other weapons. Unfortunately, they also loved another thing the Europeans brought along to trade, alcohol. Coy mead was produced from honey, but the hardtack produced by the Europeans, like rum and gin, became much sought after. By 1595, the Dutch sailed into view along South Africa's Atlantic coast under the command of Cornelius de Houtman. He, like Bartholomew Dias, sailed around Cape Point, avoiding False Bay, and landing a few days later further north, probably somewhere in the region of Cape Ogallis. The Dutch, too, appeared a little more diplomatic in dealing with the koi and managed to secure, as de Hoetman writes, Fine oxen like those of Spain, large, fine and tasty sheep as I have never eaten elsewhere, in exchange, of course, for iron and copper goods. Each wanted to be the first to trade, giving two fine oxen and three sheep for a 75-pound iron rod broken into five parts. The Koy spurned the trinkets and mirrors and bells. From the late 1500s onwards, the Cape became a favourite calling place for northern European ships, mainly the English and Dutch, but also French and Danish. They were all intent on breaking into the Portuguese monopoly of trade with the Far East. We'll drop anchor now. Next episode, I'll talk about the first half of the 17th century, where the number of ships plying their trade along the southern tip of Africa leads to a few more shipwrecks, which also had their part to play on a future South Africa in a very big way. Please rate the podcast on iTunes if you can, or contact me through desmondlatham.blog. You can also direct message me on Twitter at deslatham. Until next, goodbye.